It is well with my soul. I hope you believe that. You can say that. Not because of your own power, what you may be doing, and no matter where you are in life, whether the highs or the lows, the valleys or the mountaintops, it's all because we serve a God of promise who is a God we can trust. You can bank your life on it. And that's why we can say it is well with my soul. I invite you to reach for your Bibles for our scripture reading. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 as we continue in our series in the life of Abraham, a God of promise and a life of faith. Genesis chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to reach for one of the pew Bibles there in front of you. It's on page 12 if you're looking in the pew Bible. And before we read this passage, let me just uh, challenge you. As you leave this morning, to take one of these Easter invite cards. In fact, take three or five of them. My challenge to you as a congregation is to invite at least three different people, whether that's three families, three friends, three neighbors, coworkers, whoever it might be, at least three. Make three invitations with these cards and invite them to come to our Easter extravaganza or Easter worship service on that Easter Sunday. And so they're all around the auditorium. Take a handful of them as you leave. Look with me here in Genesis chapter 15. Beginning here in verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your scriptures, the word that you have given to us here that we hold in our hands. Lord, open our hearts to hear. May our attention and focus be on you and what you have for us through the story here of Abraham and your covenant that you made with him. Lord, let these truths and the lessons that flow from the pages of this story ring true to our hearts today. Use myself as I preach now, empower me, and use me as your servant, your mouthpiece. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. This morning, we are confronted with one of the most important questions in life, if not the most important question in all of life. It's a question that just pops right out of the pages here in Genesis chapter 15. And the question is this, is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? The issue that you and I face on a daily basis is this. Do you trust God and can God be trusted? Some of you may be struggling to do just that, to to trust God in ways that all of us here have struggled to trust God. You, You might be looking at your life and you say as you look at your life, this isn't what I thought I was going to be doing. This isn't where I thought I would be at in my life. You you might look at your spouse. You might look at your children. You might even look at a health diagnosis or any other number of reasons and ask yourself, does God really know what he's doing here in my life and with my life? Can I really trust God in this particular situation? In other words, is God trustworthy? This is the question that Abraham faces Here in Genesis 15, is God trustworthy? And thankfully, oh, how thankfully we can be, God meets us in our moments of of feeble faith and fearful hearts with assurance that he is trustworthy. In fact, it's, it's, it's beautiful how this chapter opens up in the first verse. Genesis 15 begins with this, this word of assurance here in verse 1. After these things, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Listen, that is so beautiful. That is so reassuring. That is so comforting. The word of the Lord came. The God of promise is now a God who speaks to Abraham. And this phrase describes how God gives his his special revelation to his prophets. God spoke to Abraham. And by the way, God still speaks to you and I here today. God still speaks. We may, we hear him. He speaks to us not like he did in Abraham, but he speaks to us through his word, the scriptures in which 
we hold in our hands. And so may we hear even today the word of the Lord coming to us and speaking to us in our moments in which we falter in our faith and we struggle with fear. And so when did the Lord come to Abraham? When did the word of the Lord come to Abraham? We're told specifically in verse 1, it's after these things. After what things? Well, after the things that took place in chapter 14, when Abraham won this great victory over a powerful alliance of four kings. The battle was over. Abraham was a war hero in the land of Canaan. He rescued his nephew Lot from captivity. He met Melchizedek and received a blessing. And then he rejected the king of Sodom's temptation to keep the spoils of war. And notice now what God says immediately to Abraham here in verse 1. Fear not. Fear not. Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so evidently, despite all of these great victories that Abraham has just experienced, Abraham is now what? He is fearful. His faith is faltering here. Otherwise, why would God tell Abraham at the very beginning, right after chapter 14, fear not? You might be wondering, well, why would Abraham be afraid? What does he have to fear? He's just won a great victory over four kings. Why is he fearful? Exactly. Listen, Abraham feared their retaliation. He is fearful that that these kings now are going to seek vengeance on him for their only loss at his hands. And so a vicious counterattack by these kings seems inevitable to Abraham. And he is now shaking in his sandals. This is not uncommon for the servants of God, even the prophets of God. We know later on that Elijah, the prophet there, experienced a very similar fear and despair within his own soul after his great and awesome victory over 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. In fact, Elijah even fled for his life in fear to the wilderness, even so far as to asking God to just let him die. You can read about it in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And so it is interesting to note here at the outset of this chapter that God commands Abraham to fear not. And what's interesting about that, this is the most frequent and common command in all Scripture. Fear not. It is repeated over some 300 times throughout the Bible. Fear not. And this means God's fear not here. It's not some just throwaway line that we should overlook. Listen, the very words here of God to Abraham of fear not, it shows us that God knows something about us. He knows that a a large chunk of our lives are beset with fear. Oh, how well our God knows us. God knew Abraham intimately. He knew at this moment in his life, here is his servant, and he is struggling with fear. And now to calm those fears, God tells him, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so like Abraham, what do we need to remember when we fear? 
Here it is. As sojourners who believe God but struggle with fear, remember two things. God is my protector and God is my provider. Don't be afraid, God says. Why? Because God says, listen, I will protect you and I will provide for you. God reminds Abraham here that I am your protector. I will protect you against these four kings just as I gave you victory over those four kings. I am your shield, God says to him. And then God reminds Abraham, I am also your provider. Abraham, listen, remember in 14, he's just refused the king of Sodom's reward. He's refused the spoils of of war. And so God assures him here, Abraham, even though you gave up the reward, I will be your reward. In fact, your great reward or your reward shall be very great. And so, again, how comforting. It must have been for Abraham to to hear God's assurance to him, I am your protector and I am your provider. But I think Abraham's greatest fear is that God's promise to give him a son will not come true. You might remember in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to bless Abraham with this great name, to make him into a great nation, to give him the land of Canaan to his descendants so that all the peoples might be blessed through his seed in Jesus Christ. And Abraham was 75 years old when God made that promise to him in Genesis 12. And now 10 years has passed and he still has no son. And now this promise that God made in Genesis 12, it seems all the more impossible given the circumstances that they are both, Abraham and Sarah, are now both getting older and have no son. So as you might imagine, all of this is now stirring up within his heart the question, is God trustworthy? And what we see in this chapter is that the God of promise is a God that you can trust. In fact, two principles just kind of stand out of this chapter as God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. And the first principle is this. You can trust in God's word. You can trust in God's word. As Abraham sits in his tent struggling with fear... For the very first time, he now speaks to God in response to these promises. And Abraham comes to God with a question, and it's interesting, God answers his question with a promise. Look at it again in verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And notice God's answer in verse 4. The answer is in the form of a promise. And behold, the word of the Lord came. This is the second time now. The word of the Lord comes again to Abraham and told him, This man, speaking of his servant, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So here's Abraham's question. Let's talk about it just for a few minutes here. Abraham's question is this. It's a very direct question to God. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? 
You see, Abraham at this moment thinks that his problem is the passage of time without the fulfillment of the promise. I continue childless. Abraham has God's promise. In fact, I still think that Abraham believes God's promise. He has God's promise, but nothing has changed in his circumstances. And so Abraham, he doesn't understand now how God is going to give him a son in his old age. All Abraham can see at this moment is his circumstances. I'm old. Sarah is old. We are past the age of childbearing. I have a promise, but I'm also seeing these circumstances that seem impossible in the face of the promise. And so after 10 years of waiting, Abraham thinks to himself, God, what good is it that you are my shield and my reward if I have no son to pass that reward onto? And so you can, you can somewhat, you might be able to just feel Abraham's fear here. You can almost feel his doubt in God a little bit here. In fact, his greatest fear here is now dying childless and leaving this life without any descendant of his own. And so Abraham's now ready to make his chief servant his adopted son. So what should we make of Abraham's question to God here? Well, I submit to you that Abraham's question is actually a sign of his faith in God. It's a sign of his faith because he asks this question in humble submission to God. And you can sense this submission to God in his attitude as he asks the question when he addresses God, because he uses a very unique term in which he calls God. He says, oh, Lord God. You're like, what's the big deal about that? Well, the meaning is Adonai here. For Lord, In other words, the idea he is addressing God is, oh, sovereign Lord. Abraham has a question, but he realizes that God is sovereign and he is the servant to this sovereign God. And so by bringing this question about the promise to God, it shows that the promise that God made to Abraham, it really matters to Abraham. Remember, Abraham has left everything to live out these promises. He believes them. They are, these promises are precious to him. Listen, he wants to be sure of these promises, but God so far has not shown any substantial fulfillment to these promises. And this now bothers Abraham and is causing him to struggle with fear after 10 years. Of nothing changing in his life. He is still childless. And so Abraham brings his question to God and he casts it on the Lord because he knows that God cares for him. Listen, only faith does that. Whereas unbelief, unbelief simply walks away. Unbelief walks away from God. Unbelief walks away from our faith. Unbelief walks away from the promises of God. Abraham's struggle, I believe, it actually provides 
for us here a ray of encouragement, some hope. It shows that, that the freedom that faith has to bring our fears to the Lord. Listen, we all struggle with fear. And when it happens, take it to the Lord. Cast your cares on the Lord. When you struggle in your faith, take your doubts to God in prayer and give him your fears. And then notice God's promise to Abraham. He's very specific about it. Your very own son shall be your heir. So the word of the Lord comes to Abraham again, and instead of rebuking Abraham, isn't that so gracious of God? God doesn't rebuke him for asking the question. God God reassures Abraham here, and he tells him, listen, your very own son will be your heir, not an adopted son. And then God takes his promise to the next step in verse 5. Look at what he says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Now remember, what was Abraham, what was his religion before he put his faith in God and started to follow God? Remember back in chapter 11, we learned that Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper. And so he was very familiar with the planets and the stars. And now he is alone at night. He's looking up at the stars in the sky as God Almighty speaks to him. And Abraham must have been humbled and hushed at this moment. He says nothing. For what is there to say? When God shows you this, and it's not, by the way, it's, it's not that pointing to the stars proved God's promises. Instead, the stars simply served as a, quote, visible word of God's promises. It almost seems like God is more concerned here in this moment to impress Abraham with the promise rather than to express the promise or even to explain how it's going to come about. As one commentator writes, the stargazing, star-counting episode does not constitute a rational argument, but God seeks to lay hold of the imagination of Abraham's faith. It doesn't make the word or promise more certain, but more vivid. It's as if God is saying to Abraham, here, let me see if I can give you a picture of the promise. In all of this, this is so beautiful what God does for Abraham because God does the same thing for us. It's so beautiful. All of this shows that God stoops to the weakness of our faith and seeks to impress us with the firmness of his word. Listen, you can trust God's word. We have it. It's been preserved for us. You can trust God's word. Again, God does not do this to make his promise more sure because when God makes a promise, it can't be any more sure or any more certain. It's as certain as it's going to be because God is the one making it. He doesn't make, do this to make his promise more sure, but to make you and I more sure of his promises. And so this is an act of grace by God here. God gave Abraham a visual aid in the stars to bolster his faith in the promise of a son. And now we come to the most important verse in the Bible, 
on the faith of Abraham here in verse 6. And Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, provides this verse to us as sort of a background information or background commentary on the faith of Abraham. So notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what does it mean to, quote, believe? The word used here, the literal Hebrew meaning of the word, it simply means to trust or to remain firm. The idea here specifically in the context of the story of Abraham is that the idea that Abraham believed the Lord and he continued believing the Lord. And yes, though his faith faltered at times, Abraham was still maintaining the faith he had in the Lord and continued believing in the Lord. Now, of course, this was not the first time that Abraham had put his faith or his trust in the Lord. He has believed over a decade so far. But here, in Genesis 15, his faith was clearly defined by the author of Genesis. In other words, we should not imagine that Abraham has done everything so far apart from faith or, or without faith. Listen, we know, we've studied this already. Hebrews 11 tells us this. It is by faith that Abraham departed from Ur of the Chaldeans. It is by faith that Abraham sojourned in Canaan. It is by faith that Abraham made altars and proclaimed the name of the Lord. It is by faith that Abraham prevailed in the battle for Lot, received Melchizedek's blessing. It is by faith that he rejected the king of Sodom's reward. So clearly, Abraham believed the Lord when he left Ur to follow the Lord. And from that point on, what we see in the life of Abraham is that faith was his normal response to God's word. Perfectly? Oh no, far from it. No, his faith wavers, his faith falters, but he still faith. He still believes. In fact, faith was the attitude, it was the posture of Abraham's life throughout. Again, not perfectly. It's fearful faith, it's faltering faith, it's a failure of faith at times, but it's still faith. But as one commentator explains, Abraham raises so many questions in this chapter that the author, Moses, seems compelled to remind the reader, us, of his unwavering faith. In fact, another pastor and author adds, and so in the midst of so many unfulfilled promises, Abraham does not pull away from God in skepticism and doubt. Rather, Abraham puts his faith in God. What a reminder to us. When we are fearful, when our faith is faltering, that is the moment to go to the Lord, not to pull back from Him. Not to isolate from the Word. Not to isolate from God's people. But to surround yourself even more. Still, we cannot ignore the fact that Abraham's faith here in the context of Genesis 15 is focused specifically on the promise of what? The promise of a 
son, through whom blessing will come to the whole world. So Abraham, get this, is not merely believing that God will give him offspring in general. No, by his faith, Abraham is expecting that God will raise up offspring from him for the salvation of the world. And so although Abraham does not know all the details of how this will play out, he is nonetheless putting his faith in the coming offspring who will redeem the world. And who is that? It's none other than Jesus Christ, God's Son. In fact, Jesus, when he does come, he says himself in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. But also notice the significance of Abraham's faith here. How God responds to it. What does God say? What did God do? God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. And so note that Abraham is not described here as as doing righteousness, but his faith was credited as righteousness. In this righteousness, let me tell you, it is significant what God does here for Abraham. Because by saying that, this righteousness, it gave Abraham a right standing with God and it guaranteed Abraham salvation in the day of judgment. And so Abraham, you might remember, he did not have a righteousness of his own, just as none of us do here when we were born. Remember, he was a pagan moon worshiper, and left to himself, he'd still be worshiping the moon back in Ur, and there was nothing that Abraham could do to earn righteousness, a right standing before a holy God. And so Abraham, who was originally destitute of righteousness, was now counted as righteous. How? Through faith in God. By the way, take notice of this. It was not after Abraham made some great sacrifice. It was not after Abraham purified himself of all his sin. It was not even after Abraham got his act together in life. But at the moment that Abraham simply believed in the Lord. Paul even talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. We don't have time to go to it. You can read it yourself. But here's what I want to leave you with. This understanding here of Abraham's faith It is revolutionary, and it has eternal ramifications for all of us here today. What it means is that we here, we can have now a relationship with God on the very same basis that Abraham did, simply by taking God at his word and believing in his promised son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses this specific verse to prove that people receive salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus. His argument is found in Romans chapter 4. Read all about it. And so just like Abraham, when we now hear, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, here's what God does for you. He counts you as righteous. In other words, he gives you a right standing before him that can never change, giving us the same blessing of righteousness that he gave to Abraham. And my question for us this morning is, have you done that?
Have you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Has there been a moment in time in your life where you repented of your sin, you humbled yourself to acknowledge that and cry out to Jesus Christ to save you by grace through your faith in his life, death, and resurrection? If you have, then God has credited the righteousness of Christ to your life account. And that is beautiful because it has eternal ramifications. So far we've seen that we can trust in God's word. And now we're going to see, number two, that we can rest in God's covenant. We can rest in the promises of God. Having affirmed his promise to give Abraham a son, God now proceeded to encourage Abraham by giving him a very specific information about the promise of not the son, but the land. And so chapter 15 is about two specific promises. If you want to break it down this way, it's about a promise of a son, the seed of Abraham. It is about the promise of land given to Abraham's descendants. And so to ease Abraham's quivering faith, God now does something rather amazing here. He solemnized, let me use the word, formalizes his covenant with Abraham. In fact, the Hebrew expression is literally to cut a covenant. And you'll see why as the scene unfolds. Now, this covenant, it provided Abraham the assurance that he needed to put his fears at rest. Abraham already had the promise. Remember that. He already has the promise, but a covenant is much more than a promise. It's what God does when he gets formal about a promise. Or as one author writes, Covenant is the wrapper God puts around his promise to help you believe. And that's what God does here for Abraham. But first notice the dialogue between God and Abraham in verses 7 and 8. God declares his promise and then Abraham responds with another question. So notice God's promise here in your notes on the screen. God says to him in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, what God is doing here, he's actually setting the historical context for his covenant by reminding Abraham what he did for him. And what did God do for Abraham? Well, God says, listen, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, God's reminding Abraham, listen, you didn't do a thing here. I did. I'm the one who brought you out from Ur. And God, by the way, he did this as a sovereign act of grace. Abraham didn't deserve this. Just as none of us here deserve his salvation. None of us here deserve his redemption. And so when we receive Christ by grace through faith, it is an act of God's grace. It is by his mercy. It's not something we deserve. And so this language, God will actually later use to introduce another covenant called the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 when he says, 
to Moses and the children of Israel at that time, I am the Lord your God who brought you out, not of Ur, but of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so what's interesting about this language is repeated in the two most formative events, the two most significant events in the history of the Jewish people, Abraham's exodus from Ur, and now Moses' exodus out of Egypt, were based on God's sovereign acts of salvation. God initiates it. God does it. And now, that leads to a question, though, by Abraham. God makes his promise, and now Abraham has a question. Look at it. Oh, Lord God. So it's the same title. Two times Abraham uses the same title. Oh, sovereign Lord. Oh, Lord God. How? The first question was what? This one is how. How am I to know that I will possess the land? So remember, again, remember this. This is important. Everything that Abraham says to God in this chapter arises from a heart of believing faith. Yes, Abraham is struggling with fear, but he still believes. His first question about a son arose from faith in the promise of a son. And now this question about the land, it rises from faith in the promise of the land. And so Abraham, very differently, he is not trying to poke holes in God's promises here. He just doesn't understand how God is going to give him a land just as he didn't understand who was going to be his heir. And so he's somewhat kind of asking God, God, bolster my faith here. Help me, I'm struggling. It's like the, the father of the demon-possessed son in Mark chapter 9, 24, where he cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And Abraham is crying out the same way. So how did God respond to Abraham's question? Well, once again, It's beautiful. God responded with grace. Instead of rebuking Abraham, the Lord guaranteed his promise with a covenant that he can rest in. He can put his fears to rest. And it's beautiful. Notice the guarantee of God's promise. And it is outlined for us in three different parts. Or three different scenes, if you will. Notice it's the first part. God commands, first of all, Abraham to make preparations for a covenant ceremony. Now today, our legal agreements are preserved on paper. And they are validated with signatures. They are stamped by a notary. They are stored in a courthouse and upheld by governments. And if you've ever bought a house, then you know what we're talking about because you sign a gazillion papers but not so in ancient times. Instead, legal agreements and binding promises were formalized by means of a a very graphic and gory covenant ceremony that involved animal sacrifice. And in this instance, the Lord instructed Abraham to do something here in verse 9. Specifically, look what he says. God tells Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. By the way, interesting fact here, these animals actually become part of the sacrificial system that you read about in Leviticus. So God is already prepping us and preparing us for what's going to come later in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Same five animals. Now, what's also interesting is Abraham seems to know exactly what God is up to here. 
And Abraham seems to know exactly what to do with these animals. Probably because this was custom in Abraham's homeland back in Mesopotamia. He didn't have to be told what to do next. Abraham already knew. And so according to verse 10, look what Abraham does. And he brought him, that is God, all these. He cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So, question, why cut the animals in half except for the birds? Why lay each half of the animal opposite of each other in a parallel row? What is up with that? What's going on? Well, this is actually part of the ceremony where two parties would walk between the halves of the bloody animals that were lined up in the parallel rows, and they would repeat, as they're walking between the animals, they would repeat the terms of the covenant or the terms of the promise, the agreement. And by doing this, each party was stating, if I break my word here, if I fail to honor my part in this covenant, May a curse fall on me, and may I suffer the same fate as these animals that are now cut in half and dead. So this was very intense, both graphically and by what was being said. And the stage is now set for the cutting of the covenant as Abraham now waits to walk with God between the bloody halves of the animals. But something happens that's interesting here. That's unexpected. Notice the second part. God now tells Abraham 400 years of suffering will precede the fulfillment of the promise. Notice it in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So what's up with this deep sleep? This great darkness. What's going on there? Well, the Lord puts Abraham down in a deep sleep to show us that Abraham is a non, is a non-participant in this covenant. He's a, a passive participator in the covenant while God is what? He's the active participant in this covenant. And the dreadful darkness that fell upon Abraham, well, that's just the most common emotion that happens when one is in the presence of God. But what's most interesting is that the Mosaic Covenant, later on that we talked about with Moses, would also be inaugurated in a darkness that comes over Mount Sinai. And we see that again, even with the new covenant in Christ. It would spring from darkness that covers the cross. And so although Abraham is now in this deep sleep, it seems he is still conscious because God explains something to him in detail and basically says to him in summary that 400 years of suffering will precede the fulfillment of the promised land. Look what it says. God's very specific here in verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. By the way, that phrase is why this is called a God you can trust. No, for certain. In other words, as, as sojourners, as Christ followers, we, we can know something for certain, and we should know something for certain. We are expected to have 
certainty in our faith. We are expected here to trust God's word and to rest in God's promises, his covenant. And so he tells Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God tells Abraham, very specifically, in detail, listen, Abraham, it's going to be a long time, and not just a long time, it's going to be a hard time before this promise of land is fulfilled. So prophesying in round numbers, Abraham's descendants, they are going to suffer affliction for 400 years before God brings judgment on Egypt and brings them out of Egypt to the promised land. It's what the book of Exodus is all about. And then God tells Abraham, as for you, listen, you will not live through this suffering, but you will die in peace at a good old age. Here's the point. Don't miss the point. God will be faithful to his promises, but not a part of, from suffering, but through suffering. And that goes against every grain and fiber in our life. It goes against our culture. It goes against what we want and what we sometimes, oftentimes expect of God. Because we typically see suffering as a threat to our lives, as a threat to God's promises, as a threat to His plan. When we experience setbacks and losses and opposition, we start to question whether God will ever accomplish what he has promised to do. But suffering, may I remind you, it is not a roadblock that keeps God from fulfilling his promises. Rather, suffering with God, it is the means by which he fulfills his promises. And we see this reality expressed most clearly in the suffering and death of who? His son, Jesus Christ. Listen, nothing less than the cross could bring about the fulfillment of God's promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so this reality, by the way, it is not unique to Jesus Christ. After Paul was beaten and left for dead at Lystra, Paul pointed to his suffering as the norm for all believers in Jesus Christ, all sojourners who follow God. And he says in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so be assured, rest in this, your suffering. It does not set God back. God redeems your suffering to fulfill his promises in your life. So rest in God's promises. Listen, God is sovereign over all of history, and God is sovereign over all humanity. And we see this clearly here. Don't miss it in what God says next to Abraham at the very end of verse 16. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
What's that about? The Amorites were a very sinful nation. And this term Amorites is now being used to represent all the Canaanite people in the land. They were perverse. They were wicked. In fact, they were consumed with sex and war. According to one commentator, sex was their primary function. You go over to Leviticus chapter 18, and it will list for you there 12 variations of sinful sexual relations that were rampant in Canaan among the people of Canaan, including incest, bestiality, adultery, sexual perversion. And it concludes with this warning in verses 24 and 25 to the children of Israel as they enter the land. God tells them, do not defile yourselves by any of these practices. For the nations that I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things that he just listed previously. And the land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, its sin, its perversion. And the land will vomit out its inhabitants. And so there would come a day, God is prophesying to Abraham, that when the Amorites had reached the point of no return. That is, the people in the land of Canaan have reached the point of no return. And that is when God will unleash the Israelites out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan to wipe them out. Now, in our culture today, that flies in the face of our culture. Because people don't understand that. People think God is vicious, he's evil, whatever, because they don't understand the big picture of God's word and what God's doing here. They don't understand that sin has consequences and that God judges our sin. They think God should just overlook all sin and accept all people, no matter what. It doesn't work like that in God's kingdom. And so in truth, listen, Israel's, Conquest of the land, if you've ever wondered about this, was actually an act of justice, not aggression. As the Amorites had tried God's patience, they had long flaunted God's moral law for 400 years. Yes, God will give this land as a very gracious gift to Abraham's descendants. However, God is entirely justified in judging other nations for their sin in the fulfillment of his promises. And yet, and yet, don't miss this, God's delay was filled with grace for the Amorites. He has grace for the people here in the land of Canaan. God gave the Amorites, these people in the land of Canaan, He gave them 400 years to repent of their sin. 400 years to turn to God like Abraham did. He is merciful and gracious. But they continued to despise God's goodness. They continued to despise His long-suffering, and they refused to repent of their sin. And now their sin was complete after 400 years, for God's judgment. And that brings us to the third part, where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham 
that guarantees the promise. So notice what God does here in verse 17. He says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, that all represents the presence of God. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And the fact that God alone passed between the dead animals, that's what's most important here. It means that God is taking upon himself the full responsibility for keeping the covenant. And it's as if God is saying to Abraham, go ahead and take a nap, Abraham. You're already in a deep sleep. Just continue on, brother, because this covenant is on me. I am the one who is making an unconditional promise to give you this land. It is not up to you, Abraham. It is totally up to me. I am the one that will make this happen. And so this covenant is completely dependent upon God, not Abraham. And that's why it says here in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And then God gave the geographical boundaries of the land here in verses 18 through 20, where he says to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of all these ites. I won't repeat them all. There's 10 of them. Actually, nine, one's called the Rephi. And so while Abraham's descendants took the land, we read about that in Joshua, lived in the land, they never fully dispossessed these enemies from the land as they were commanded to do. Therefore, to this day, Israel has never fully possessed the land. Not even at the apex of King Solomon's reign. But in God's timing, listen to me, in God's timing, they will possess the land. Why? Because God made a deal with Abraham here. Yes, Israel's history is a a history of rejection of Jesus Christ as their true Messiah. And it has kept them from fully realizing the Abrahamic covenant here and fully possessing the land. But one day, mark it down, one day, At the end of the tribulation, Israel will turn to Jesus Christ and they will inhabit the future kingdom over which Jesus Christ will reign as their Messiah. And then Israel will fully possess the land that was promised to them by God to Abraham. In fact, listen, in summary, Amos 9, 11 through 15 says, In that day, what day? The future millennial kingdom. Behold, the days are coming. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So with that in mind, what is the one big idea of this chapter? What is the one big lesson in truth that we learn from God's covenant here with Abraham? And I would submit to you it is this. God is what? trustworthy. God is trustworthy. You can be sure that God will keep his promises. Listen, the God who has been faithful to his promises to Abraham is faithful to all his promises to us. You can trust God sooner or later. Here's the deal. As you know it, you've experienced it. People will let you down. You know what I'm talking about? The reality is of living in a fallen world. So if you put your faith in people, you're going to be disappointed. Doesn't mean we don't trust people. We don't build relationships with people. We just understand the expectations there. 
But God will never fail you. You can trust in God's word and you can rest in God's covenant. Why? Because God is trustworthy. And the ultimate proof that God is trustworthy is the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So what an awesome God we have. What an awesome Savior we have. This God of promise is a God you can trust. The question is, are you trusting him? Are you trusting in this God, the God of Abraham? Or are you trusting in a God of your own puny imagination or even trusting in yourself to work out your life? And I would simply ask you, how's that going for you? Listen, the Lord God, the sovereign Lord God is trustworthy. So trust in God's word and rest in God's covenant promises that are found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, oh, we confess that we often struggle in our faith. We feel fear. We wonder if we can trust you. And so often we're trying to figure out how we're going to handle these problems that we have on our own. So, oh, how we need to see that you are trustworthy. Help us to see that we can trust in your word, we can rest in your covenant that is provided in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our shield, our protector, our provider. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.